Well, we are going to continue our sort of impromptu sermon series responding to the coronavirus as a church, as Christians. The overall question that we've been thinking through these last couple weeks as we process all of this is this. Is there anything unique about the Christian response to this moment? Any resources or perspectives or spiritual capital that we've been given by God that's unique encouragement, calling, or contribution. And so far, what we've seen is Jesus' great commandments to love God and love others provide a unique mission for his church in this time, all the time, but maybe especially now. And we also saw last week that this is not the first time God has asked his people to serve him while in quarantine. And the Bible actually presents unique opportunities to connect with Jesus and to witness to Jesus while we're isolated. It turns out we don't have to make all of this up as we go. Not entirely, anyway. We have examples from the Bible of God's people connecting with Jesus in deep and impactful ways while in quarantine. And so for these last two weeks before Easter, this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to continue to ask this question. What unique resources do we have in Jesus to live through this moment well? And I want to use the season of the church calendar that we're in right now, the season of Lent, to help frame and continue to answer this question. You can see the purple cloth behind me on the cross. This is a traditional Lenten color, but what is Lent anyway? And here's a better question. How could it possibly help us live well and think well during the coronavirus. Well, Lent is the 40 days before Easter, as you probably know. Um, it starts on Ash Wednesday and, and ends before Easter Sunday. And it's, it's a 40 days that mirror the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness before his ministry. It's also a 40 days that mirror the 40 years the Israelites spent in the desert before arriving in the promised land. It's a season of spiritual preparation for things to come. It's a desert season. It's a season of self-reflection, of repentance. It's even a season of suffering that invites us to identify with Jesus in his suffering, sometimes through fasting or other forms of self-denial. If I had to sum it up in one phrase, I would say the season of Lent is an intentional time to say no to some good things so that we can say an even bigger yes to the greatest thing, which is Jesus himself. Now, full disclosure here, since we're being honest with each other, I don't have a Catholic or Anglican background. I don't have much of a liturgical background of any kind. I didn't grow up celebrating or observing Lent. And my initial gut reaction when I hear Lent is to think of a kind of relic of religiosity, a kind of joyless, even rote custom that we modern American evangelicals in all of our grand wisdom have left behind. Now, maybe you can relate with that, or maybe you did grow up in a tradition that celebrates Lent, and you're glad that you are no longer in that tradition. And what in the world is my pastor doing, bringing it up now? This doesn't seem like the time, Luke. You're making me a little nervous. But before we ditch a centuries-long practice of church history, let's pause, and let's see what it might have to offer us in this particular moment especially. I'm not arguing that, that Lent itself is commanded in the Bible, but I am suggesting that what Lent encourages and what Lent cultivates in us certainly is. What the spirit of Lent commends to us it is not only deeply biblical, but it might be uniquely helpful 
as we move through the uncertainty and the loss of the days ahead. Because here's the thing, if you practice Lent at all, we're used to giving up chocolate or Twitter or alcohol for a few weeks during the spring with the goal of setting aside some good things for the sake of a better thing, concentrated time and attention to Jesus. But during this season of Lent, the year 2020, you didn't have a choice what you set aside, did you? I mean, loss was applied to us whether we wanted to participate in Lent or not. The coronavirus outbreak and quarantine that we're in right now, it's like an international super Lent season, okay? The, The world is being forced to say no to some good things that we usually get to enjoy. We're we're living through uncertainty and loss, whether we opted into this spiritual practice or not. We're experiencing self-denial that we didn't self-initiate. We're grieving, we're anxious, we're sad, we're uncertain, and we're even suffering. We're all in a season of Lent, whether we like it or not. So my pitch is let's turn to God's word this week and next for guidance along the road of grief and along the road of growth that this season in particular offers the church. This week is grief, next week is growth. And our passage this morning is from Psalm 13. So would you please follow along as I read. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If there's any question that we're all asking right now, it's the question of Psalm 13. I mean, talk about a psalm for this moment. How many times today or this week have you asked the question, how long? How long will the shelter in place order last? How long will my kids still be at my house while I'm trying to get some work done on a Zoom call or a phone? How long will church be canceled? How long until all of this goes back to normal? It's uncertain. It's an unsettling time, to say the least. There's an article in the Harvard Business Review that came out this week, and it was titled, The Discomfort That You're Feeling Is Actually Grief. All right, and it was an interview with David Kessler, who is the co-author of a book called On Grief and Grieving, Finding the Meaning of Grief Through the Five Stages of Loss. Uh, He's one of the world's experts on grief, and he's the one who introduced us to the famous stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And, And so the Harvard Business Review asked him, people are feeling any number of things right now. Is it right to call some of what they're feeling grief? And he said, yes, we're we're feeling a number of different griefs. We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way. And we realize things will be different. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection. This is hitting us, and we're grieving collectively. We're not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. And so the the interviewer follows up and said, "You're, 
you said you were feeling more than one kind of grief. And he said, yes, and one is anticipatory grief. It's the feeling we get about the, about, or we get about what the future holds when we're uncertain. So we get this sense that there's a storm coming. There's something bad out there. We're feeling that loss of safety. I don't think we've collectively lost our sense of general safety like this before. Individually or smaller groups, people have felt this, but altogether this is new. We're grieving on a micro and a macro level. Now, I don't know if you've thought yet about the virus in this way or not, but what we're feeling right now, it's not just uncertainty and anxiety. It is that, um, but it's also grief. It's a mourning and a loss of something good. It's, it's a deep sadness and even a suffering. I've talked to a number of folks who are already grieving business pressures and even job loss. Uh, this week, apparently 3.3 million people filed for unemployment benefits with the federal government. And the previous record for a single week was about 700,000. And, and that was way back in 1982. And we're calling out, how long, O oh Lord, will our businesses be shut down? How many, O oh Lord, of my employees and my friends will I have to lay off before this is over. How far, O oh Lord, can we stretch savings to cover the rent and the mortgage? These are cries of grief, not just uncertainty. We're grieving with those who are sick and those who are afraid of being sick. How long, O oh Lord, will our dear friends be sick? How long will our elderly family members and friends be in danger? I, for one, am grieving the loss of corporate worship and the church together embodied. Again, this Sunday, I'm, I'm in a, standing in an empty church room, and it's not supposed to be this way. Hebrews 10 tells us, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In many ways, not gathering for worship together cuts against the very heart and the very mission of our church. We're doing this out of love. We're hitting pause but it's a loss, and I feel it, and I'm really going to feel it on Easter. In fact, I already do. I'm already deeply sad that we won't be together to celebrate that day. In Life Together, in his book Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. I experience that joy and that strength when I'm with you all in worship, and I grieve losing it, even if it's just for a season. I'm, it makes me very sad. And so the first thing I want us to see here in Psalm 13, and actually in so much of the Bible, is that God himself gives voice to our grief and our loss and our fear and our cries for help. We're not calling into the void in the general direction of God who isn't really responding right now. No, it's almost the exact opposite of that. You see, God actually gives us the words of grief and sadness and doubt uh, with which to address him when he brings us into these places. He gives us the words we're going to need before he even takes us to the place where we're going to need them. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about here. You're, you're already experiencing the grief of this thing. But some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You hear me, and you understand the words that I'm saying, but 
your job isn't threatened by this and it's not going to impact your income much. Your health isn't threatened by this and you're pretty well insulated from the storm. Instead of an imposed Lent, this feels a bit more like an imposed vacation. And that's fine. It's even good. Celebrate it. Enjoy the family time. Don't squander it all on your cell phone. But also know that your spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ here in the valley, around the country, and around the world, they are feeling loss. And they are scared about the future. And what Kessler calls anticipatory grief, it, it's weighing on them. Some are, at, some are sick right now, some are at risk right now, some are overwhelmed with kids at home without much help or feeling the burden of running a small business that will have to lay people off. So I'd invite you, even if you don't feel the grief personally, to enter into it with your family, uh, to grieve with those who grieve. Don't disappear on us. Don't disengage. Now is when we need you the most. So if Lent is about saying no to something good, to say yes to something even better, let's not pass over the no part too fast. Don't skim read Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2. The last two sermons of this Corona series have been about the things that we're still saying yes to, even in the midst of a season of no. We're saying yes to our mission as a church. We will never lay that down to love God, love one another, and love this valley. We're saying yes to the gospel opportunities that God gives us. Next week, we're going to say yes to the spiritual growth that can come out of moments like this. But maybe here, just for a minute, pause with me and feel the weight of the no, of the loss and the sadness, yours and other people's. So let the Bible give voice to your grief here for just a moment. Speak God's words back to him in your heart as I read a few passages that he has given us for our grief. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Jeremiah 8, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Psalm 31, verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Romans 8, starting verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are even too deep for words. In our passage today, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You see, the Bible, it gives great dignity and great voice to our sorrow. It's right to call out to God, how long? 
to pray in a challenging posture to God, to hold God to account to his promises of healing and presence and relief and redemption for his people in times like this. This is how the Bible itself teaches us to grieve. So like the work of David Kessler, we have permission and even direction to move through the stages in the process of sadness and loss. There's something healthy and good about not skimming over that part of it. Feel it and sit in it. But unlike the self-help movement, the gospel doesn't just give voice to our grief and then leave us alone in it. The resources of the gospel, they don't stop by dignifying our grief. The Bible does that, but then Jesus gives us a profound hope in the midst of it. Look again with me at the last verses of Psalm 13. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is such an interesting posture. David, King David, the author, he, he's reeling. He's still sad. He's lost. He, he's, um, he's in anticipatory grief. And with one breath, he's asking, how long, O Lord? But with the very next breath, he's placing all of his chips on his future joy in God. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. How can he be so sure of the future in the face of the grief? How, how can he be so sure that his future will be full of joy when he feels almost none of it in the moment? Because even though David didn't know all the details about how God would fulfill his promises of steadfast love and salvation, David trusted in the God who always keeps his word. And we know so much more about God's plans, how they unfolded for our good throughout history. Listen to one of the greatest passages about Jesus in the whole Bible. It's from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, was, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken. Another way to translate that is plagued, diseased, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This right here is the unique gift of Christianity in our grief. Not only does God give great dignity to our grief, not only does God offer comfort and hope to our grief as he reigns over all things as a good and powerful king, not only does God hear the cries of our grief as a loving father, but God has actually entered into our grief and experienced the full weight of the grief of the world. He's done that himself. Nicholas Wolterstorff was a philosophy professor, um, and his son tragically died in a climbing accident, actually. This was years ago, but he wrote a book about his journey through grief, and it's called Lament for a Son. And in it, he writes, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It's through the prism of my tears that I have seen a suffering God 
and great mystery. To redeem our brokenness and our lovelessness, the God who suffers sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. If the point of this season of Lent is to say no for the sake of an even bigger yes, and if we've sort of all been thrust into this corona super Lent, whether we like it or not, experiencing loss and grief and fear, know this, okay, hear this. Jesus, your God, your King, your Savior, your friend, was the very first one who said no to almost everything in his life. All the comforts of heaven, his home, his friends, his father, even life itself. He said no to these things so he could say an even greater yes to you. So that he could welcome you back into his family. So that he could be with you in your grief, carrying your burdens. And so he could be with you in the life to come. Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's the God we worship. And that's the totally unique story of God in the world. Only Christianity not only offers a God who hears you and loves you, but offers a God who comes to be with you and experience the grief you experience, also that he can bring you out and heal you and complete you and make you whole. We are in a unique time. This is a unique season of our lives. And part of what we need to do well as Christians is grieve, but know that you're not alone in that. You're not alone in your grief. Jesus is always with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for Psalm 13 and David's cries of anguish to you. Thank you for Isaiah 53 and the the clear promise that you are with us in our grief, that you became a man of grief to heal all the brokenness in the world. God, help us call to you in our uncertainty, in our fear, in our sorrow. Help us rely on you and pray to you, but ultimately help us hope and trust that you are with us and you're making all things new. We love you, God. Thank you for this time this morning in your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen.